Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and find our seats. Let's find our seats and open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. And let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning and we see these, these letters that were written by you to churches, to people like us, and you were able to, you gave an assessment of their actions and their beliefs as your people. And you had commendations and you had admonishments, and especially the one that we're going to look at this morning. If the shoe fits for us, Lord, help us to, to wear it long enough to be able to repent and get rid of it. That we would be those who love you with our whole hearts and not just coldly obedient. Help us to see you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 1 in Revelation is the things that John has seen. And so John has faithfully recorded those things. And we ought to make mention of something here uh, with John, I think, you know, right off the bat. John is a recorder. He's acting as a secretary. He is, it's like he is taking dictation. You'll notice as we go through that John does not offer any interpretation on his own of what he sees. In fact, on a couple of occasions, when he is asked what it is that he is seeing, he, his response to the one who is asking him is, you know. And so John is faithfully recording. He's obeying what it is that he has been commanded Remember Jesus in chapter 1, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. That's his job, and he's being faithful at it. And so we need to remember as we are reading this that John is telling us what he saw. He's telling us what he heard and is recording it faithfully in that way. And we will, be, we will be dependent on the Lord to give us the information that we need in order to be able to understand what it is that John was seeing and writing down. And there's something else that we should probably think of right here too. God doesn't waste words. God invented language. He knows how to communicate. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't waste them. God is not verbose. He doesn't take 50 words to describe what he could in five. And so when we see a lot of descriptions 
recorded by John, those descriptions are necessary. They plug in somehow. And we will see that now. Uh, last week when we saw the vision, um, you see the description of the risen Christ. He's walking among seven golden lampstands. In his right hand, he's got seven stars. He's clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. Head and his hair are white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. He's got a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. He describes himself as the first and the last, the living one. He was dead, and behold, he is alive forevermore, and he has the keys of death and of Hades. Every one of those things we're going to see when Jesus describes himself as he's writing the letters to the seven churches. He's wasting no details. Now, some of those details are given to us because then we can tie back, and we looked at this last week, right? We can tie back to Daniel chapter 10, and we can see that this vision that Daniel had, which, by the way, what was Daniel commanded to do with his vision at the end of chapter 12? Anybody remember offhand? Write it down, but seal it up. Daniel was told, you seal these things. It's not for right now. It's for a long time down the road. But now here you have the Apostle John coming in, and he is seeing all of those things, and God's commanding him, you write this stuff down, and you're not to seal up the book. This one, this one's for publication. And so here we have God who hundreds of years before John was seeing the things that he saw, God is already again planting those threads so that they will carry through and, and culminate in the book of Revelation. And so what we see is that the Bible is a whole, written by a bunch of different men over centuries, and yet it's one book, and it all fits together. which is a very cool thing if you actually stop and ponder that for a while. So, chapter 1, the things that you've seen. Chapters 2 and 3 are going to be the things that are. And these are going to be letters to seven churches. Seven churches in Asia Minor. The most uh, likely place that you would land, Ephesus, was the major port on the west coast of Asia Minor. And so it would be the place that you would land. And as you're going to go through, if you're going to be going and delivering these letters, the order of the seven churches is the order in which you would get to these towns. So when you get in, you land at Ephesus, you begin to go north, and then curve around and come back to where you've made just about a perfect horseshoe. In fact, I was in, in, in some of my reading. Um, if you were a visiting dignitary, apparently by law, you had to land at Ephesus for whatever reason beats me. Now, we talked last week briefly. Some 
look at these letters and they say this is like seven episodes or seven eras of the church. And so you start back in the first century at Pentecost and from Pentecost all the way until the end of the church age, these seven churches represent uh, seven eras. And so if you were to take them in order, then we, assuming that the return of Jesus is near, then we would be living in the era of Laodicea. Now, the problem with that is, is number one, all of these churches existed in the first century. And he's writing to churches. John knows these people. There's reason to believe, uh, church tradition has it, that John had ministered at Ephesus for some years before he was exiled to Patmos and that he actually had dealings with each of the seven churches that are listed here in chapters 2 and 3. It's best to understand it, I think, that this is seven different conditions of a church. And as we read these letters, I don't know how you look at these. It's almost disappointing. Five out of seven have got problems. Some of them are very significant problems. And the two that he doesn't admonish in any way, they're hurting for certain. Not because of sin, but because of persecution. These people have already experienced people in their church being murdered, being martyred for the faith. And so uh, none of these churches... Is, is, is walking down easy street. So we have seven letters, and there are seven elements to just about every one of these letters. There are a couple that are missing, uh, one or two of these elements, but generally speaking, each of these letters is going to follow the same basic pattern. So you have... Uh, at the beginning of each of the letters, you have a command from Jesus to John to write down what he's saying. And so John is to write, and he's writing to the angel of a specific church. We talked about this briefly last week. Angel is the, the biblical term for messenger. You can even translate it as envoy. Um, it is used, I believe it's used 106 times in the New Testament, seven of those are absolutely positively referring to a human being, where he's being referred to as an angel. Paul refers to himself as an angel. So I don't think that Paul is getting to the idea that he's got this little halo sticking up on a stick here and circling above his head. He's an angel because he is a messenger I believe that was in 1 Corinthians. He's a messenger to the Corinthian church. And so the idea of being a messenger is inherent. It's, it's tied up in the idea of the, of the term angel. And so it's, I think it's going to be, it's best to look at this that when he's, when he's talking about, he's writing to the angel of the church at Ephesus or Smyrna or Thyatira or Pergamum or Laodicea or Philadelphia 
or the other one that right now is escaping, uh, Sardis, uh, that he's writing to the pastor. He's writing to the leadership of that church as opposed to um, an angel of the church. Any questions on that? Has anybody ever heard, I mean, how have you understood that to be? If I could make the sound of a cricket, I'd make it right now. How have you understood that? No one's going to jump out there on that one. I've never contemplated that. You've never contemplated? That's a fair answer. <laughs> All right. Well, no one's going to jump on that grenade. Well, seeing as we're going to be talking about landmines in the next hour, then uh, we can come back and think about this. So, ma'am. That would be correct. The angels, and, and in fact, the idea there, remember that uh, in, when, when John saw Jesus, he's walking among the seven lampstand, and what's he got in his right hand? Seven stars. And the idea of having them in his right hand is the idea of which he has control of these people. These people, which, can I tell you something? As a pastor, I love that. I'm held in his hand. And so that's something that's pretty encouraging. Uh, and so the idea here is that he has control of these men and he has control of these congregations. And again, we're going to see that these things, these words are very personal, very personal. So John's commanded to write. Second element Jesus describes himself. So again, John is not describing Jesus. Jesus is describing himself. And so, for instance, when we, get, when we look at Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. And so, there's no ambiguity there. Jesus is the one who is describing himself to this church. And the idea of the lampstand, that's, that's, that's recorded for Ephesus for a reason. So again, there's no wasted words here. There's, there's, there's nothing that is just uh, extra superfluous. So all, virtually every one of the self-descriptions of Jesus is going to tie back to chapter 1. Just about every single one of them. There's a couple at the very end that, that uh, are different a bit. And so again, the idea here is that as Jesus describes himself, there's no one else who can be described as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. There's no one else who can fit that description. And so there's no question when each of these churches get this, these letters that are addressed to them, there's no question who's writing it. There's no question who's doing the assessment. 
of their leadership and their congregation. There's no question. Third, there's an assessment of each church's works, and it is introduced by these words. I know your works. I know is oida, which is a word that's used to describe complete and full knowledge. This isn't something that Jesus is learning. This isn't something that he's heard a rumor about. This is something of which he has utter and complete understanding. And so I know your works. And then he'll go on from there to describe his assessment. Hebrews 4.13, you know, right after it talks about how the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, right? Piercing asunder to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrows and a is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And all things are manifest before him. All things are, are naked and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And so the idea is that there's nothing that's hidden from him. You can't surprise him. You can't pull the wool over his eyes. You can't fool him. None of that is true. And so he's the only one who can truly assess the works and the ministries of these churches because he understands not only what they do, he also understands the motives that they have as to why they're doing what they're doing. Now, none of us can do that. None of us can. But Jesus can. And he does. Fourth element, there is commendation. If they're doing something well, he says so. You're doing this well. And or there's criticism and accusation if those are appropriate. Six out of seven churches get some type, well, actually, it's really five. One's, one's backhanded. Uh, so five out of seven get some type of commendation for what they're doing. One gets no condemnation or commendation at all. Um, and there are two churches of which he has no admonishment. So again, these are common in most. If they've done well, they are commended for it. If they have deficiencies, those deficiencies are noted and they are addressed. And they are addressed straightforwardly. Fifth, you have exhortation. Now, exhortation, what, what does it mean to exhort? What does that mean? Okay, to lift up, to teach. I believe it is. Bringing to the mind. Okay, so the idea is, can you exhort in a positive way? Sure you can. Can you exhort in a negative way? Sure you can. It depends on what the issue is. And so um, 
The idea is, again, if they've done well, he has encouragement for them. Things that they are not doing well, he identifies what they're not doing well, and he warns them to repent or else there's coming judgment. If you don't repent, there are consequences coming. And so again, the exhortation. Sixthly, there's a general exhortation to the reader of the letter. Now the interesting thing about the, the, that exhortation, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church as, plural. That is in each of the individual specific letters that are written. And so the idea is, is what? You're not just expected to read yours. You're expected to read the other ones too. And what are we doing now? We're reading those letters that were written to people who lived 2,000 years ago. And, and we are to read them with understanding and comprehension. So he who has an ear to hear, who does that describe? Believers, and believers only. That is why if, you, if, if an unbeliever reads this book, is he going to be able to understand what the book is saying? He might to a point, if he, if he really studies and if he reads people who can, who can explain some of these things, he might be able to go through and connect dots. If you get a, uh, you don't even need a commentary, you just need a good cross-reference Bible. And if you look at chapter 1, you'll end up in, in Daniel chapter 10. All you got to do is follow the cross-references. Is he going to be able to understand the things that, that God is saying that are spiritual? Okay, Greg, you're shaking your head no. Why is that, bud? That's right. The natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit. He doesn't understand them. He's not able to understand them because, again, he looks at things naturally and things that are spiritual are spiritually appraised. That's like a, um, uh, it's like a code that he hasn't got. Um, my mother liked puzzles. And I can remember uh, she had something, she would get these books that had all kinds of different puzzles in them. And they had these ones called cryptograms. And a cryptogram was, uh, it would be a saying, and it was encoded. They, for the purpose of that particular puzzle, Y, at any time you saw the letter Y, well, that didn't mean the letter Y. That actually meant the letter R. And all 26 letters would be jumbled. And you would look at the word and try to figure out from different patterns in the letters uh, what letters they actually represented so that you could find out what the actual saying was. So for the natural man, he's looking at the encrypted cryptogram and he hasn't got the key. So he looks at a letter and it's just a bunch of 
random letters, and it makes utterly no sense for him. So as we look at these letters and we see these, these exhortations, both, uh, both positive and negative to the different churches, why, if they, were, if they were letters that were written for a specific church at that current time, why are they in this book? They apply through all the ages. And I think it's appropriate that we look at, at Ephesus this morning. There are some things about the letter to Ephesus that, that honestly are challenging. Notice how also, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I'm confused now. Who's speaking? Is it Jesus? Or is it the Spirit? That is not a rhetorical question. You don't get off the hook on this one. It's both. Jesus and the Spirit are the same, right? It's, it's one God in three persons, and frankly, they're interchangeable. And so here, the Spirit is involved in the giving of God's Word, and yet Jesus is the one who is actually dictating it. In fact, you'll see in, in other places, uh, we did this when we were going through systematic theology here a few months back. Um, you have the Holy Spirit referred to as the Spirit of God, but yet you also have the Holy Spirit referred to as the Spirit of Jesus. And so they're, they're interchangeable in the aspect of they're the same essence, they're the same being, and so there's no difference. That's why Jesus was able to tell Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen who? You've seen the Father, right? I'm sorry? It absolutely does. That's right. You know, all right, here, we have a little bit of time. Flip over to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews. Now, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. And frankly, that was intentional on the part of the person who wrote the book. Because you'll notice that as he goes through, when he quotes from the Bible, everybody knows who wrote Psalm 8. That's a Psalm of David. It's in the Psalm that it's a Psalm of David. Yet, when you look at 
chapter 2, we'll start in verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You've made him a little lower than... Who wrote... Where is he quoting from? That's Psalm 8. We know who wrote that. He doesn't care who the human author is because throughout the book he keeps going back to and saying the spirit is speaking the spirit is speaking every time he refers back to here the spirit is speaking don't refuse the one who is speaking and so the idea here is that the spirit is wrapped up inseparably with the giving of God's word inseparably and so the idea that Jesus is the one who's dictating, the Spirit is the one who is speaking, yeah, whoever it was earlier who said it's both, right on. So, seventh element, there's a promise to those who overcome. Who is it, generally speaking? Okay, we're trying to get the big picture here. Who is it who overcomes? This person does two things that are going to identify him as an overcomer. I'm sorry? He's obedient. That's the second one. He obeys. He hears. He hears. He obeys. Those are the characteristics of the one who's going to overcome. Now, here again... When it comes to the idea of how is it that we are kept? We are kept for salvation. Once we are redeemed, we cannot become unredeemed. Why is that? Who accomplishes that? Okay, God does, in fact, all three parts, right? We are, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We're given the Holy Spirit as the earnest, as the down payment for our inheritance. And so we have the Holy Spirit. We're kept by Christ. Remember, Jesus talked about, you know, we are in his hand and no one is able to take us out of his hand. And who else did he put right into that same picture? God's in there too, the Father. And we're in, you're in the Father's hand, and there ain't nobody who can get him out of the Father's hand, right? So the idea is that we are kept by God, yet at the same time, we are responsible to persevere and to overcome. I'm responsible to do that. I am responsible to obey regardless of consequence. And in fact, one of the evidences of my redemption is that I obey. And so this isn't circular reasoning. It is simply that God does keep, and yet at the same time, I am to be actively, obediently keeping and observing what it is that God has commanded. Now, does that make sense? We're all on the same page there. 
Am I speaking Hebrew to anybody? We're all good? Okay. Those are the seven elements of each of the letters. So, with our time that's remaining, let's look at the first church, Church of Ephesus. To the, church of the, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for, not, for my name's sake and have not grow, grown weary. Jump down to verse 6. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, are those accusations? Are those criticisms? Or are those commendations? Those are commendations. They are doing things right. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week. When Paul was writing to Timothy in the pastorals, what was the problem in Ephesus? False teachers teaching false doctrine. And you cannot get through First and Second Timothy without seeing that mentioned time and time and time again. It is a big deal. There's trouble in River City. And much of that trouble is arising from their own pastors. Paul had told them that was going to happen back in Acts chapter 20. From among your own selves, men will arise who will seek to lead the sheep astray. And by the time Timothy gets into Ephesus, that is occurring. That's present tense. It's happening. Yet, when we get to the time that, uh, that John is writing this letter, what's happening with their doctrine? Are they orthodox? Or are they involved in heresy? They're solid. Doctrinally, they are solid. They, 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 uh, they assess the life and the teaching of these different people who come in to teach them. And those that are right, they identify as right. And those that are wrong, they identify as wrong. They reject their, their instruction. They are solid doctrinally. So it appears that Timothy was successful in his ministry. The church has avoided, they've been able to step away from that landmine and they are no longer held captive to it. So they're solid doctrinally. The, when you get in here and you look at the idea here of, of, I know your deeds and your toil, that word toil is the idea of working to the point of exhaustion. And so they're not, they're not sitting back. They're not lazy. They are at work on behalf of the kingdom. 
I know your toil and your perseverance. Again, uh, the uh, perseverance, the backpacking word, hupomone, to keep your shoulder under the load and you keep moving. You, you're patient. You have endurance, even in the face of adversity, in the face of opposition. And so you're toiling hard. You're persevering. You're staying at it. You haven't grown weary. So, uh, you know, Galatians 6.10, do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you shall reap if we faint not, right? They're not fainting. They're not giving up. They are hard at it. And so when you look at these things, they've endured, they've, they've persevered, they have solid doctrine. God ought to be thrilled with these people, Right? He ought to be thrilled with them. They hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Not every church did that. There's another one that we're going to find that they've been infected by the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So they're solid. And so God ought to be thrilled with them. Verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else. Now, there's a couple of scary words when God is saying them to you or else. I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Seven churches. All right. We've all read the book of Revelation, right? We've all read it. Which church would you consider to be in the worst condition of the seven churches that are being written to. Who typically takes the hardest hit? Laodicea. Now, I think it's debatable if they're in worse shape than Sardis. He doesn't have very many nice things to say about Sardis either. You know that Ephesus is the only church that he threatens to remove their lampstand? He doesn't say that to anybody else. Now think about that for a second. It's not enough to be orthodox. It's not enough to be to have sound doctrine. These people have it. They have sound doctrine. Jesus just commended them for it. But it's not enough. And I think we need to pull over here for a minute. 
we hold a high view of God's word here. We do. And the teaching here is that's the bar that you are to toe. The bar that you're to clear is assessing the accurate meaning of the text and teaching that so that we understand what God says in his word so that we may do it. And that holds true pretty much across every ministry at this church. We have changed some ministries in this church because it was felt that a particular ministry was not clearing that bar. So it got changed. Do we, have we, are we falling into the same pit that the church of Ephesus was in? It is possible to have accurate doctrine where you're not running off, you're, you're not falling off the trail, you're not falling off the log. Y'all know what I mean by that, right? You ever watch log rolling? Now, I don't know who came up with log rolling as a sport. I have no idea who came up with it. If you've never seen it, you've got a long log, a night, like a telephone pole, and it's in some water. And you get two people who get on the log at the same time, and they both have real spiky shoes. And the object of the game is to make the other guy fall off the log before you do. So first guy in the water, he loses. And you watch these people, and sometimes they're facing the same direction, sometimes they're facing opposite ways, and they're watching the other guy's feet. And they start slowly. And then they speed up, and then they'll go, they're just trying to throw the other guy off so that he goes in the drink. And you can fall off the log a number of ways. You can go feet first. You can go face first. You can go belly drop, belly flop. You can fall on the log. That one hurts, I would think. There's a lot of different ways to fall off the log. In the Christian life, there's a lot of different ways to fall off the log, okay, and to get off track. The Ephesians aren't doing it with doctrine. They're doing it by being cold, by doing things by rote. Remember how Israel, God accused Israel, you're obeying me, but you're just doing it out of habit. And you're doing it by show. It's not from the heart. Now, what was the great Shema? Okay, you shall, the Lord our, the Lord our God is one, you shall love the Lord our God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, right? What does that incorporate? Every part, right? Every part. So that means we are to love him with our minds, 
We are to love him intelligently. That means by choice. We consider things and we realize that what God says is true. And therefore, we, we buy into that. We trust him. We're to love him with all our strength. It means you don't hold back. You're not tentative. You're not double-minded to where today I'm, I'm for God and tomorrow I'm for me. We're to love him with all of our heart. That means with all of our affections, not just our minds. It's with our affections as well. If Ephesus wasn't doing that. Now the idea here of first love, since most of us in here are older, most of us, I don't know, Danny, you've been married a long time. You might not remember your honeymoon. You're giving me a look like, hey, Turkey, I remember my honeymoon just fine. <laughs> What's the honeymoon like? <sighs> Is daylight savings time really sucked all that much out of you guys? Man, what planet are you from? We had our first fight before we got married. <laughs> you know, you, you, used, you used some great words in there, all right? It's new. There's a lot of things that are, that are new when you're on your honeymoon. It's happy. There's, I mean, there's... Is there anticipation when you're on your honeymoon? There's all kinds of things, and you're looking at it, it's like, it's like you're a little kid, right? And, and the present that's been wrapped and sitting and waiting for this day, right, is finally here. And you get to go in, and you don't have to be nice when you, you just tear it apart because you want to get to what's inside, right? There's anticipation. And not bad anticipation either, right? It's, it's, it's looking at it with the idea that this is, it's like we're dogs. Dogs, you, you, you look at a dog, today's the greatest day ever. I want to go for a walk outside. This is great. That's what, that's what honeymoons are like, right? Don, you wanted to say something? <laughs> For the purpose of the tape, Don observed that the honeymoon is when you're trying to prove to the other person that you really are who they think you are, as to who you've been presenting yourself to be. The idea of a honeymoon is, is there any problem with emotional commitment when you're on your honeymoon? No, there's not, right? You were giving me a strange look there, bud. When you're on the honeymoon, you're all in, right? And everything is 
is new and everything is just, you're discovering things and you're discovering things together. I'm sorry? Yeah. Again, for the purpose of the tape, it's the, the, the passion and everything is single-minded. Everything is focused on, on the other person. Don. So when you talk about the honeymoon, we've all experienced that. Now, unfortunately, in life, do relationships come to the time where the honeymoon is over? I hope not. I hope not. But the fact of the matter is, you can if you don't work at keeping it that way. The temptation will be, and the overall pressure will be, that things become a lot more ho-hum. It's another day. And the excitement, you know, it, and it gets to the point where we're not like dogs anymore. We had a dog when I was growing up, and all I had to do was get the leash. Show the leash. And the dog was going absolutely nuts. Because, oh, we get to go outside, we get to go for a walk. <laughs> and he's ready to go nuts. Show a leash to a cat. Yeah, the cat's going, listen, the only person getting that thing on him is you if I get to hold it, right? You don't put cats on a leash, not unless you want a good cat fight. And yet so many relationships come, become that way, don't they? You have to work at maintaining, at keeping the element of passion and excitement and, and longing and focus and dedication. You have to work at that. That does not come naturally. In many ways, it's the same way with our relationship with the Lord. Is it difficult to get to a point where 
you would actually look at somebody and say, I am so full of the joy of the Lord. This would work better if I had my black suit on so I could look like a mortician. Why is it so many of us don't sing? Why is it so many of us don't sing? And I, I, can I tell you something? Singing comes from the heart. If you have a crummy voice, it's crummy because God gave you a crummy voice. Right? I have heard people who couldn't carry a tune if you gave them a 20-gallon bucket. But when they sing, they are singing from their heart. They're not singing because they want someone else to hear them and how good they sound. They are singing out of a heart that is overflowing with joy overflowing with contentment. And I got to tell you, there's a number of people, there's a number of men in this congregation, God would be a whole lot happier hearing you sing than Pavarotti. Why is it? When we have men's retreats, I know we haven't had one for a while, that's going to change here hopefully soon. Why is it that so many men are silent? Why is that? Pardon me? Pride? You know what? Can I tell you something? I don't have a hard time singing to my wife. Now, but I don't have a great voice, all right? People are never going to pay to hear me sing. They would pay to hear her sing. But they'll never pay to hear me sing. But you know what? I'll sing to her. Why? Because I love her and because I'm expressing different things to her, either by word or, you know, by making a fool out of myself or whatever. And I don't care because it's her. Ryan. Can I, can I make a suggestion? For you guys that, you know, are challenged singing with a singing, you know, the singing voice just isn't something that I would like to let out in public. Think about the words. Think about the words that you're saying that are up here on the, on the screen. You think about those and you think about how I would express. This morning we're going to sing a song. My sins, they are many.
his mercy is more. That's worth seeing. Even if I have a crummy voice. That's worth expressing to my God. The gratitude that arises out of that statement. Sure. Yeah. So again, the idea here is the problem with the Ephesians was that they had no heart in the game. They were willing to suffer for Christ. They were willing to serve him. They were willing to work hard. They were willing to deny themselves in order to be able to accomplish things on God's behalf. But Jesus was not happy with them because they just did it out of, I need to do this. And there's no heart behind it. There's no gratitude behind it. None of that stuff is there. And Jesus says, that is a foul. And it's foul enough that if you don't repent and you don't straighten up and fly right, I'm going to remove you as a church. He didn't say that to Laodicea. He didn't say it to Sardis. He didn't say it to Pergamum. He didn't say it to any of the, of the other churches that have got issues. He says it to the ones that are doctrinally sound. So, We escape some of the landmines at other churches that we're going to read about here in, the, in these two chapters that they hit. We need to make sure that we miss this one. Okay? And that is, hang on a sec. And that is, again, where we need to go in and we need to evaluate ourselves. We need to test ourselves examine and if in fact that describes me then you repent today today
Well, I think the answer to that is uh, given down in verse, hang on now, I need my glasses back. Oh, they're over here. In verse five, therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Now, for those of us who came to Christ early in life, this might be a little more difficult. But for those of you who came to Christ later in life, do you remember what it was like when all of a sudden you have been exposed to the gospel and you get it and you've been regenerated and you've been given the Holy Spirit and all of a sudden there are so many things that is God the last thing that you want to talk about or the first thing you want to talk about? It's the first. When you're overwhelmed, again, later in life, when you all of a sudden come face to face with the concept of sin and shame and guilt and forgiveness and liberty and being made alive when once you were dead, boy, I tell you what, when all of a sudden that's coming... When, when that's settling in, can you keep that inside? I haven't seen too many new Christians who walk around with the, I am so full of the joy of the Lord. I don't see that with somebody who's all of a sudden come face to face with the fact that they were dead and they've been made alive. That they were under God's wrath and now they're adopted into his family. So the idea there, now, will that spill over? If I do no longer have that passion toward my Redeemer, can that spill over into other relationships? Oh, yeah. Sure it can. And so the idea is, um, one of the ways to fall off the log is to all of a sudden treat your redemption like it's I think I need a nap. Mary? surrounded with a great cloud of witnesses, right? Where are eyes supposed to be? On the witnesses? Where are the eyes supposed to be? Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so again, um, here's one. And by the way, when he's in verse 5, when he says the three R's, remember, repent, repeat. Remember, present, active, imperative. Keep on remembering. Not a one-time thing. You keep on remembering so that you don't end up forgetting or it just gets crowded out by something else. Questions? Any other questions?
you're going to have to do better next week. Maybe we won't be so tired since we lost an hour last night. Let's pray. Father, I don't know how many of us fall prey to this accusation that we have left our first love for you. That our Christian living is, is more going through motions than it is wholehearted adoration and devotion. And Lord, if that's true, bring it straight before our face that we may repent, that we may remember, and that we may do the things that were done at first. You're worthy of all of our adoration. You're worthy of all our love, of our fidelity, of our desire. David wrote, who do I have in heaven but you? You have done so many things for us. You've redeemed us. You've adopted us. You've cleansed us. You took our sin. You gave us your righteousness. Lord Jesus, you endured the wrath of God and took the blows that were due to me. Father, may these things never be true of us. Lord, help us to love you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. That we would love you affectionately as we love those that are here that we can see. And help us to do that today and tomorrow and the day after until the day that we get to be with you forever. Work in our hearts, please. In Jesus' name, amen.